Episode 999, The History of Christianity, Part 9. Wow, Ben, after all this time, <laughs> the return of our most popular series. That's true. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Ben Anderson. And I am Ben DiVono. We're back. And We're back. this is, a uh, depending on how long you've been listening to the Sci-Fi Christian, you're either wondering what happened to the first eight, or you get the joke. Well, listeners, back in season two of the Sci-Fi Christian, I posted a series of eight episodes that Ben and I had recorded in the midst of season one, but never got posted in the main feed. Once Ben had left the show, I needed to put some Ben in your lives, and I use a a uh, college project that I had done, which was eight weeks of podcasting related to the history of Christianity. But they weren't they weren't originally sci-fi Christian episodes. No, they were not. They weren't even Life Report episodes, although I can see we l- used the Life Report music from those uh, original episodes. So if you want to catch back up, where we left off was episode 64, <laughs> The History of Christianity, part eight, and we released that on June 7th, 2012. And now, here we are. if somebody is listening, and again... They're newer, so they haven't heard us reference this. They might be thinking to themselves, well, I'm definitely going to go listen to the first eight before I listen to this one. And you should. You should. (laughs) But you have to understand, this was a very, very bad run of episodes. And they got progressively worse. Or or funnier, or better. Yeah, they were funny, but they weren't, you know, the actual history of, of... Christianity. Yes, I did poorly on this assignment. <laughs> well, you got an A minus. It was my first A minus. You know, so there was a sacrifice there. But yeah, they the episodes, the series went off the rails in a big way. But here we are, episode nine hundred and ninety nine. Yes. We knew we had to go big. We had to do something special. This is a milestone episode. It's our last three digit numbering of our right. podcast. Right. I mean, we're here as we record this episode. We're, we we won't have a milestone like that for another nine thousand episodes. <laughs> So we're recording episode 1000 after this episode. Ben had this whole idea. He had the topic idea and even the title. So Ben, thank you. I love it. I love the return to the history. <laughs> the history of Christianity. Now, if you're you're thinking, well, I can't wait to hear, you know, a lost recording or, or an equally off the rails episode, uh, I think we're going to try and rescue the series a little bit wow. uh, here today. So this is this, depending on why you're listening, this will be either the worst or best episode <laughs> in the history of Christianity series. But no, the, the topic actually came uh, before I thought, you know, it'd be funny to call this part nine or mm-hmm. I, I didn't remember what part. We I were thought we were at, part 10 yeah, yeah, part 10 or 11 or something. Right. So it'd be it would be funny to include this in the history of Christianity series. And who knows, you know, as I was putting my notes together for this and I'll give the topic in a second. But this is going to be a super high level overview. There's a lot of stuff in here that could be its own episodes. So if it's well received, maybe we'll have a, a part 10. Maybe we'll have a part 11. Yeah. Well, if you would have asked me, well, you did ask me where we left off and I thought we had done 10 episodes back in 2012. So I thought this was going to be part 11, but I'm kind of glad it's part nine because it lines up well with right. 999. It was a nine heavy yes, episode. very nine heavy. So the episode I wanted to do, uh, and this is inspired in part by that we've had all of these Catholic question and answers and I know we have some Catholic listeners, we have some Eastern Orthodox listeners, but I'd say our, our audience as a whole skews more evangelical Protestant, or at least that's my impression of, of it from our audience interactions. And so uh, those Catholic episodes we've done, especially over the last year, I think were, were really well received, 
and were fun to do and interesting. And as I was talking, I was actually talking to the Rainies. My family and I were up with them at the beginning of October for a weekend. And I don't remember the exact conversation, but I know we were talking through something and somehow Vatican II came up. And it occurred to me, and, and you know, again, I don't remember the conversation, so Rainies, maybe this feels completely out of left field to you. But it occurred to me, like, there's this whole segment of, of recent church history that's super important to Catholics, but is not that well known to Protestants and evangelicals. And of course, that's a generalization. There's plenty of Protestants, evangelicals who are familiar with Vatican II and its impact. But especially as we look at, you know, how do you compare some of the tensions and divisions within uh, Protestant churches to what's happening in Catholic churches? And so I thought that would be interesting to explore. And it, it's there's there's an interesting history here, uh, regardless of your level of knowledge. But I'm sure you, you are obviously familiar with Vatican II. Guess what? I'll admit right here on the show, you've used the phrase... I have no idea what this episode is going to be about. I really don't know anything. So if I if I said, tell me everything you know about Vatican II, you would say? Uh, I have no knowledge of Vatican II. Okay. So Vatican II, that, that's great, because I actually think a lot of people are going to be in that boat. And if you're not, and you are somebody who knows a lot, uh, just keep in mind, I'm moving at a very high level here. So this is going to be an overview. So there's going to be a ton that is left out, a ton of generalizations, all the stuff that you get from a high-level overview. And and I'm also going to speak from the Catholic perspective. And I say that because as soon as I start, you know, and I, I do say that Vatican II is an ecumenical council, and I'll explain what that means in a second. Uh, from an Eastern Orthodox perspective, no, it's not because of the split between East and West. So I'm speaking from a Catholic perspective, but with awareness um, that there are those differences out there, and and they're significant and and warrant further discussion within the church. But part of where I want to get into Vatican II, and I'll talk about what an ecumenical council is in a second, and what Vatican II was, and all of that. Um, if you look at Protestantism throughout the 20th century, and especially the relationship between mainline Protestants and evangelicals, or Baptists and various flavors of kind of uh, Baptist, evangelical, non-denominational, Pentecostal, all of that side of things. What you really see throughout the 20th century is a movement that is developing in relationship, if not reaction, to the advent of higher criticism in the 19th century. Higher criticism being, um, you know, if people are familiar with things like the Jesus Seminar and all of that, looking at, as you looking at the Bible and saying, okay, we're dissecting this more as a human document and from a, you know, a historical perspective and the the more typical examples of higher criticism are going to arrive at conclusions about, well, you know, there maybe was a historical Jesus, but he didn't perform these miracles and that's not what it's getting at. And it's essentially Christianity by way of modernism. Uh, again, a very high uh, generalization introduced there. And if you look at the history of Protestantism over, say, the last 150 years, it the central question is, how does the church 
the Protestant church respond to modernism, and you have various answers to that. In mainline Protestantism, and again, this is not across the board, and certainly not in every church, but if you look at the main denominations, uh, the ECLA, the you know United Methodists and all of that, what you see is really at least an openness, if not an embracing of higher criticism. And so we're going to revisit our theological conclusions in light of modernism and in light of this new way of looking at theology. And of course, that's been <clears throat> highly controversial. When you talk about liberal versus conservative within a Protestant theological context, which of course is distinct from the political context we're all familiar with, a liberal interpretation within Protestantism would embrace more and more of that higher criticism and be in that kind of now even beyond that into postmodernism. It's really calling into question doctrines that would be considered central for most of Christianity, even up to and including the divinity of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ, the nature of, of sin, um, other social doctrines where it starts to cross over into politics, be it the nature of marriage, uh, sexual mores, all of that stuff, and on and on it goes. Whereas as a conservative interpretation is go within Protestantism is going to read uh, the Bible in a more literal fashion. Uh, it's going to hold to more of the classical doctrine. So, of course, there's plenty of disagreement, even within, say, conservative Lutheran versus a conservative evangelical on what those precise doctrines are, nature of the sacraments and all of that. Nevertheless, we, we kind of smooth that out for the sake of simplicity. There, there is a desire to hold to the traditional interpretation of Christianity. And this is also why you know, things like evolution were such a hotbed topic within uh, Protestant Christianity, especially evangelicalism, is that, you know, evolution um, for a literal reading of the Bible sort of blows apart Genesis. And so if it's like the debate about evolution, and, and I think it's a false debate in the sense that you don't have to give up the Bible to understand evolution. We've talked about Genesis at length, so everybody knows where I'm coming from. But from, or if you've heard those episodes, you do. Uh, but from a basic level, the way it feels is that if you give up evolution, you're actually seeding the basis of the entire higher criticism argument. That's why that's such a hot button issue among Protestant churches. It's not really about evolution when it comes down to it. It's about the fundamental presupposition that either leads us in the direction of the liberal church or the conservative church. Again, I think that's a false choice, but you can understand how you get there with something like that. So very high level, that's the story of evangelicalism and Protestantism throughout the 20th and now 21st centuries up to, and, and now you'd really have to revise it with an emphasis on postmodernism and the emergent church and all of that that took place over the last 20 years. All that to say that even if you're not familiar with that history and you're a Protestant, you're actually living out that history every week based on where you choose to go to church, what churches you belong to, uh, the conclusions that you would, would draw about the Bible and all of that. So this is a very alive debate within Protestantism. And whether, whether Protestants are individually conscious of it, it or not, it's impacting them and it's affecting them. The peril, or go ahead. I was going to say, in the last year, I've mentioned this on the show before, but my wife and I started going to a new church, still Protestant, but a new church, and it's a little bit more liturgical than uh, churches that I've been at in the past. 
And I was just thinking this past Sunday, and I believe you may have even said this in the past, when I thought it to myself, it, so I almost had a memory of us discussing it, liturgical churches have almost a comfort to them. Yeah. Have you talked about that before? Or do you feel that way? I, I don't know if I've talked about that before, but I do feel that way. And, and I don't know if it's just that, you know, if you're a type of person that likes a rhythm and you like when this happens and the next thing happens and you kind of know where things are going and you kind of have, I, I, I'm not really sure exactly what I, what made me feel comforted by it, but uh, yeah, but there, for example, I, n- I have not been at a church before that recognized too much about the church calendar. And right. uh, like this past Sunday at my church, and maybe it's the same for your Catholic church, it was like Christ is King Sunday. Yeah, Christ or, the King Sunday yeah. is the last Sunday in the church yeah. calendar. Well, my church right now mentions the church calendar, which I've never been really aware of too much right. before. We're heading into Advent, which of course I've heard of Advent, but... If yeah, uh, December is the one month when evangelicals become liturgical. Yeah, exactly. And, and you can even bring out uh, icons and statues, but for that month only. <laughs> so, anyway, all that to say, I know that this is not exactly what we're talking about tonight, but I, I, it just, it kind of falls into that whole category of, uh, I, I, it's almost as, I might be overlap, starting to overlap with you a little bit, just a little bit. You'll no, get there. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get there. there. <laughs> all roads lead to Rome. So, uh, suffice to say that, that, you know, we could do our own series of episodes on that side in the Protestant church. Vatican II, then, if you look at that same debate and same effect of modernism and higher criticism, the impact of Vatican II is that it caused that same type of debate within the Catholic Church. Now, people who are familiar with the council might already be getting ahead of me and say, well, no, that wasn't the council. It's it's everything that came after. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. But the... The same tensions that exist between liberal theology and conservative theology also exist in the Catholic Church, and and very much so. Uh, We are united institutionally in a way that Protestantism is not, but a lot of those same types of debates and same tensions exist. The difference is that—and I I don't want to declare too much of a wall here and, and imply that higher criticism and those whole modernism debates don't cross it all over into Protestant or into Catholicism, uh, but th- they're not the source of it in the same degree. For example, I mentioned evolution earlier. It's not controversial to speak of evolution as a scientific fact within the Catholic Church, even among very conservative Catholics, because it, it's simply not. Um, a lot of people probably are aware that the Big Bang Theory was developed by a Catholic scholar. So why, maybe you're heading towards that, but why is it not controversial? Because it's similarly to how the Calvinism-Armenianism debate is a post-Reformation debate within Protestantism, mm-hmm. this same tension that erupted in the 19th century was an intra-Protestant debate. Okay. So in other words, evolution and I'm simplifying here, but if evolution is the line we have to hold to keep out higher criticism, which is how it was viewed in a lot of evangelicalism, that line didn't exist in Catholicism because that debate didn't exist. And so there wasn't a tension of if we give this up, we're also agreeing to all of this other stuff over here. Catholicism had its own issues with modernism and everything. We'll talk about that in a second. But that whole debate doesn't exist in Catholicism Okay. to that same degree. Okay. Same thing with kind of that ultra-literalist reading of, of the Bible. Right. 
Catholics, even very conservative Catholics, and I would consider myself, well, and we tend to use the term, and I'll introduce it here, traditionalist as opposed to conservative. Because of the political ramifications? No, no. Um, really because of, of within Catholicism, tradition has a, a richer history and, and richer meaning than does the term conservative. I, mean, I know you always mention Catholics are okay with mystery. We don't need to have right. an answer to every question. So yeah. I'm sure that eliminates arguments because you could be in, in um, conversation with someone and it doesn't have to end with, I am right, you are wrong. Yeah, exactly. And I think the evolution debate is a good example of that. So c- Catholics need to affirm uh, the historical reality of original sin. Okay, but that doesn't necessarily mean affirming seven day creationism. You can find because there's a billion Catholics out there. You can find young earth Catholic creationists, Mm -hmm. of course. Uh, I I think they're wrong, but the Catholic belief about the origins of the universe allows for that. It also allows for, you know, like the John Walton view that we've talked about before, the lost world of Genesis one, something that's a bit more, you know, of a, a less literal reading of Genesis, but still affirming it as whole sacred scripture, the word of God, all of that. But, you know, and then, then within the, what is Catholic dogma, affirming the reality of original sin. And you would also have to affirm God's role in creating the universe. You know, if you deny that and, and follow the scientific theory to then make a philosophical statement on the randomness and disorder of the universe, you're now outside Catholic teaching, regardless of what you believe scientifically. So all, all of that still applies. So, Catholicism, then, when it comes to how do you deal with issues and changes in the world, uh, the way that those are dealt with within Catholicism, and and the ones that are preeminent for this conversation are modernism, the arrival of that, the post-Enlightenment era era of the 19th, 20th centuries, uh, and then the arrival of postmodernism in the 20th century up until uh, our day here. The church deals with that in a variety of ways. Of course, we're not sola scriptura. We believe in uh, sacred scripture. We believe in tradition, which is not just, you know, there, there, there's boundaries around that. And then we we uh, believe in the magisterium, which would be the pope and the bishops and, and the teachings of the church. And those three pillars of authority are what guide Catholic teaching. And, and we believe that God reveals himself through all three of them, obviously, uh, and I'm not going to belabor this point, but that doesn't mean everything the Pope says is directly from God, and you can listen to the Catholic episodes to get a, a clarification on uh, papal infallibility, and we, we've we've been over that a number of times. So suffice to say that itself would be a very complex topic, but let's just take it at that, that beginning level. One of the most important aspects of tradition, then, is the conciliar history of the Catholic Church. And what I mean by that is that there are a series of councils that have existed throughout Catholicism that have come together to address major theological issues or major disruptions in the world. You know, there's something that hasn't been addressed directly in the Bible, something that hasn't been addressed directly in the church's deposit of faith and its its current tradition. And that needs to be uh, directly brought before a council and ruled on by the magisterium. Um, 
and we believe that the Holy Spirit works through the conciliar structure. The highest form of counsel, because you can get all sorts of regional councils and synods and all of that, the highest form of, of counsel is the ecumenical council, which is a gathering, and this is the part where I'll have to you know, give my disclaimer to our Eastern Orthodox friends, this is from a Catholic perspective, is a gathering of all of the bishops in the world to discuss a certain issue. How many are there? Oh, 24, I think. It's oh. in the 20s. Wow, I thought it'd be more. Uh, no, and the, the first one actually takes place in the Book of Acts, the Jerusalem Council. So, sorry, I meant how many bishops are there? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Hundreds. hundreds, yeah. Okay, that, that's more what. I, yeah, that's more what I thought. Hundreds yeah. of bishops. Hundreds of bishops. So is it kind of like pope, bishop, cardinal? No. Um, so all of the all of those levels are are bishops. So they're all bishops. Okay. Uh, there are bishops, archbishops, and there are cardinals. Cardinals are uh, they will elect the pope, and then the pope is the bishop of Rome. Okay. I don't want to necessarily get into the whole bishop structure because sure. that'll take us down a huge rabbit hole. I'm interested, but maybe a different day. Right. That, that's why I said there's tons of stuff to pull apart. That's in a great this episode, episode title, The Bishop Structure. <laughs> the, the hierarchy, right? So in the book of Acts, you have the Jerusalem Council where there's this open discussion about what are we going to require of the Gentiles who convert. And I, I forget exactly what it is, but it's essentially decided that, you know, they don't need to you know, be circumcised. They do need to not drink blood. And there's a couple of other things, you know, like that, that, that the Jerusalem council rules on. And that's essentially sets the mold for the conciliar structure of the church, uh, all the way up to today. And the way a council works, and again, Catholics believe the Holy Spirit works through a council is that you have, uh, this meeting of the bishops. It often lasts for several years, you know, and obviously not continuously in that, but but a several year cycle. And at the end of it, there are a series of documents produced that affirm uh, or set forth what the church teaches on whatever issues the council was addressing. Another famous council, and this is where uh, I, I do have to roll my eyes a bit at Protestants, because you guys are all on board with councils up until about the the first 500 years of the church, and then we're just we're done with those. So the Council of Nicaea, the Nicaean Creed, is the product of one of the ecumenical councils. Uh, you know, that's what's what I, I just find astonishing is that Protestants hold to the Nicaean Creed and like hold to it as the north star for what is and is not orthodoxy, lowercase o. Uh, but that's a that's a conciliar decree. You know, the, the de declaration of the Trinity, which is not found explicitly in Scripture, it's definitely implicit in Scripture, but it's not explicit. And you have this whole debate at Nicaea between the Arians who want to say Christ is a created being and, and the the Catholic uh, Orthodox position, which is that, no, Christ is a member of the Godhead and the Trinity. And Nicaea is what rules on that, that no, the Trinitarian belief is the correct belief. And I, I think everybody, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, all largely agree the Holy Spirit worked through that. So uh, Catholics just believe that he didn't stop at, at Nicaea. So other major councils, or, or another major one to, to mention is the Council of Trent after the Reformation. If you've heard the term the Counter-Reformation, which is where Catholicism met to you know, institute several reforms. Uh, I thought you were going to say 
is like anti-reformation. No, no, no so it actually like wasn't. The the Catholicism strikes back. No, it it actually wasn't. I was mean, there the, ever after Martin Luther is like, oh, hey, yeah, I mean, there's he something was new. Communicated, but then was there ever a, a big discussion like, hey, we got to really fight back against this new movement? Towards- I mean, that's a complicated topic in yeah. and of itself. But uh, the Counter Reformation and the Council of Trent sought to implement needed reforms, part of which were. Uh, brought to light by the Reformation. I bet we talked about this in the previous episodes of the history of Christianity. Yes. But I'm wondering when did the the word like when did they really have uh, name distinctions? You're Catholic. I'm Protestant. Was it immediately after Luther, or did it just I, happen I, over time? I have no idea. I bet I covered that in that in I'm 2012. Sure, sure, you did. Go back People to the episodes. Head back to those. So the the Council of Trent also. When we've talked about the controversy over the deuterocanonical books and people claim, well, uh, those are added at the Council of Trent. The reason people make that claim falsely is because the Council of Trent explicitly calls out the canon. But the canon existed for Catholicism all the way up for, you know, the last thousand plus years prior to Trent. Why did that get addressed at Trent? Because the concil, and this is vital for understanding how councils function in Catholicism. Councils aren't just going to address things to address them. They're going to address things that are at issue. The canon was not at issue prior to Trent. The reason why it was at issue in Trent is because of the Reformation. That's why the canon was addressed and indeed affirmed in the documents of the Council at Trent. So that's where some of that misunderstanding comes in. Yeah, I think... Over on the extra feed, we have discussed some of the deuterocanonical books, and I think you mentioned that before, that this thing about councils and Protestants yeah. are for some councils and not for others, and uh, in some way, the canon, well, not in some way, the canon with the books that that we would call deuterocanonical, they were affirmed at some point, but yes. then, I think you said speci- specifically Martin Luther just didn't like certain books, so he just threw them out. That, that is correct. Okay. I mean, obviously, that's... Simplistic, but it, it's correct. Yeah. Okay. So the two most recent councils, one of them took place in the 19th century, and that was Vatican I, the first Vatican Council. Now, why is that one the first Vatican Council? Well, the councils are named, if you haven't caught on, they're named after where they take place. Hmm. Now, you would think that why wouldn't they always take place at the Vatican? I don't know. I have no, I mean, that's probably, you'd have to, to answer that question, really get into the historical, sociopolitical factors that were taking place. Maybe the Vatican was new. It, it wasn't. <laughs> they just built the Vatican. They're like, you know what we should do? We should have a council. <laughs> a council. Uh, so Vatican's been there for a while, but for whatever reason, only the two most recent councils were at the Vatican. So Vatican One was explicitly called to address the problem of modernism. So the Enlightenment has arrived on the scene uh, to a degree the same things that would lead to higher criticism as led to it in Protestantism were beginning to arrive. The church needs to address modernism. You know, obviously this is something that you're not going to have explicitly addressed in the Bible. Uh, You're not going to have explicitly addressed in previous councils or previous teachings. So perfect example of what uh, the council needs to to address. Now, I'm, I'm definitely not an, well, I'm not an expert in any of the councils, but definitely I have more knowledge about Vatican II than Vatican I. But Vatican I, at a very high-level summary, was an insular council, meaning that it was about protecting the church from the influence of modernism. So it sought to say, okay, modernism is looking to do X, Y, and Z. We, as the Catholic Church, reject those aspects of modernism and indeed 
we consider uh, modernism as a philosophical movement. We're not talking about, you know, inventing electricity or something, but as a philosophical movement, we consider modernism contrary to the teachings of the Catholic Church. In a nutshell, that's the position that Vatican I takes. Okay. Now, along with that, you also have the church affirming, and, and I don't know for sure to what it, how explicitly this was affirmed in the Vatican I documents, but you have the, the church affirming uh, the, the notion of the Catholic church's exclusive role in salvation. So the church coming out of Vatican I is not interested in dialogue with the world, and it's not interested in dialogue with other Christians. We are the Catholic Church, and that's that. Now, again, this is generalizations over simplifications. Where you have the church develop as the, the, the world you know, becomes modernism progresses, you get into the 20th century, you have both world wars, you have this massive upheaval, is that it becomes increasingly obvious that the church needs to address its role in the modern world, not against the teachings of Vatican I, but to better clarify and contextualize them for how the world is changing. In other words, this sort of insular church, um, we're going to affirm, and this would be a traditionalist perspective, but we're going to affirm the teaching of Vatican I. It is binding to us as Catholics. But the the way that we work that out, the application of it, needs greater revision and it needs to be visited. And that's what led us to Vatican II. So roughly how long was it after Vatican I? A uh, hundred plus years. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know the exact dates of Vatican I, but the okay. Second Vatican Council took place in the 60s. Okay. So you're in the post-World War II era. Uh, the Second Vatican Council um, is called by Pope John the 23rd in the early 1960s. I believe the precise dates, I don't think I have them. Of Vatican II? Of Vatican II. I can it, find that. Okay. I'll put you on the case. Yeah. So, but it, it takes place over a period of time, and John the 23rd uses this metaphor that he wants to open the, the windows of the church and let the light in. I've got it right here. October 11th, 1962, all the way until December 8th, 1965, right? Three years. So it's a long, long council. So specifically, the things that John the Twenty Third wants to do, and he's using that metaphor to kind of paint a picture of a dusty, you know, stuffy church. And we're going to open the windows, and we're going to get fresh air in there. Specifically, the things that we want to have the council address is we want to have it address the role of the laity within the liturgy. We want to have it address the role of the church in dialogue to the world, as well as to um, other Christians, non-Catholic Christians. Uh, we want to have it address the liturgy and what that looks like. And so if you look at the, the documents of Vatican II, a lot of the big ones, like one of the major ones is Lumen Gentium, the light to the Gentiles. And it addresses what is the church's relationship outside of itself. And so these are explicit topics out there. The, the council, as you said, uh, lasts uh, three years, and John the Twenty Third passes away during it. Mm. It's eventually closed by Pope Paul the uh, who becomes the first post-conciliar pope. So the council then is is looking to discuss these topics, and as you can imagine, uh, you start to have really two main factions that are going to emerge. 
one of those factions is the traditionalist faction, the, the faction that says no. Uh, the church doesn't want to do those things. Uh, we do not want to, you know, let's let's shut those windows back up. That's plenty of fresh air for now. Let's keep rolling as we are. The second faction is the faction that the reform faction, the faction that does want to move in that direction. Now, the dirty secret about the reform faction is that it's actually two factions. And this is going to be critical as we watch the fallout from Vatican II over the next several decades up to and including today. So at the time, within the council, if you were to assign those kind of conservative liberal uh, labels to it, you would call the traditionalist side the conservative side, and you would call the reform side the liberal side. What's interesting is that uh, two of the folks on the reform side are Carl Votia and Joseph Ratzinger, who would later go on to become Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI, respectively, two of, and especially Benedict, the most prominent conservative theological figures in 20th and 21st century Catholicism. So if you, you know, we'll get there, but if you want to get a feel for how the church changed and shifted and all of this that was going on, what looks like the liberal faction is actually not the liberal faction. What looks like the conservative faction is actually a, is, is definitely conservative, but is more of a radical traditionalism that's within the church. The real divide that will emerge is going to be within the reform faction. Because, we'll get there. Because there is a liberal reform, there but there's a also liberal conservative reform. Exactly. Reformed. Okay. Exactly. Or, or traditionalist reform, however you want to put it. Um, the reform party is actually, you know, they carry the day. If you read the Vatican II documents, they call for reform. They call for changes. They specify where those changes should take place, the role of the laity, the liturgy, all of that. However, what's interesting about Vatican II's documents, remember, this is critical if you want to understand the subsequent debate, what do Catholics believe is binding at a magisterial level? It is the documents, the teachings of Vatican II. Okay? The documents say almost as much as they don't say, meaning that they call for reform, but do not specify what that reform ought to be. They call for greater involvement of the laity, but they leave it open what that greater involvement is. They call for dialogue with the world but they don't specify what that does or doesn't mean. So you're saying after three years, they're really, they're, there's not clear direction on what to do with what they discussed for three years. There's, there's, there's clear direction on which way we're going, but this is why I mentioned that split in the reform party. Because depending on how you look at the documents of Vatican II, they can be pointing you one way, or they can be pointing you in a radically different way. Wow. And if you, so Pope Paul VI begins implementing the reforms and it becomes clear very soon that these reforms are going to have some radical shifts within the daily life of a Catholic. So prior to Vatican II, the, the mass is in Latin. The priest faces ad orientum, which is facing away from the congregation. Uh, the laity is not involved in, uh, any of the readings or anything like that. Uh, communion is on the tongue only. Confession is always, you know, the kind of what you see in movies behind a screen and all of that. On and on it goes. 
as the reforms begin being implemented, a lot of these start to change. The mass becomes in the vernacular, meaning the local language. Uh, the priests begin facing uh, via populum, which is to the people as opposed to ad orientum. Uh, the communion is distributed in the hand, not just on the tongue. Confession often no longer has that traditional screen, though I'll say I'm a big fan of the screen. I, I don't know why you want to look somebody in the eye and tell them your sins. So you have a choice, you're saying? You do. So any and, Catholic can go in and do face-to-face -face or screen still? I mean, it parish to parish is going to depend. Um, you know, the way my parish is set up, because of the way they built the confessionals, face-to-face -face really isn't that viable. But, I mean, you could request it. It's not... When you're in there, since you probably know your priest, yeah. do you ch can you, do you change your voice a little bit? Uh, you, like, you go Batman. Hey, bless uh, me, Father, for I have sinned. <laughs> oh yeah, you, you know I go to a fairly large parish, so it's not as as much of a concern. But yeah, you want to you want to dodge that. Uh, so you know you have some of these changes. Jared Tolkien famously stood up in his first post-reform mass and began loudly giving the responses in Latin and was not about to accept the vernacular. So, you know, obviously this becomes a highly controversial thing. The music begins to change from traditionalist, you know, Gregorian chant, all of that, to uh, anywhere from more modern hymns to new music written out of this. And this really leads us into this kind of first phase of the fallout of Vatican, uh, Vatican II, where we start to see this initial split. Because as you can imagine... A lot of these are controversial. A lot of these remain controversial to this day. And as I listed some, and that's really just a subset, you could go on and on about all of these different changes. What you can, what you would expect to happen is exactly what happens. People are going all over the map with how they view uh, these changes and what they want to do with them. So on the one hand, you might have, um, one faction that would say the more changes, the better. Let's completely reinvent things. Let's, you know, redo the liturgy on and on it goes. And over the last 50 years, we've seen some pretty horrifying versions of that play out. On the other hand, you're going to have traditionalist factions emerge because remember, our traditionalist friends from the council are still in the church. They're still Catholic. And so they're going to want to insist on mass in Latin. They're going to want to insist on, you know, communion on the tongue and, and all of the more traditional elements, especially the reform to the liturgy. And this isn't even getting into yet. What are the doctrinal implications of this? And that's really, and this is where I'll speak in very broad brushes. You start to really have three main groups that are emerging at this point. You would have the group that is just pissed off about Vatican II. They don't like it. You know, yes, we, we believe what we believe as Catholics, but we are not on board with this council. And to the extent that we have to be on board with it, we are going to drag our feet every step of the way. You have a group that is pro-reform. They want to see changes made. But definitely, you know, that doesn't mean that we're now just every anything goes. You know, we still we still need to hold to the church's view of modernism. We want to uh, revisit all of these things and look at them. We're open to the conversation, but there is a definite limit. We are still Catholic. And then you have a side that is rapidly embracing modernism. 
and is applying changes not only to the liturgy, but also to doctrine and our understanding of doctrine. We'll come back to that. Again, this is a broad generalization. I know people who are super conservative in doctrine, but have embraced what would be considered more liberal liturgical changes. So you get all, you know, mix and match. There's no, this is not one size fits all, but if we're speaking generally, this is where the church is at this point. So at this point, the society uh, of St. Pius X emerges. One of the main figures on the traditionalist side in the council is uh, a bishop, and I only read his name, so I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but it's something along the lines of Lefebvre. Uh, it's a, a French uh, name. Uh, he is not a happy camper <laughs> after Vatican II. So in, in 1970, he forms a traditionalist society, the Society of St. Pius X. Uh, the Society of St. Pius X I think he was the Pope during Vatican I. I. I believe that, or if not, was a very strong anti-modernist Pope. So that's where they got his name. Uh, eventually, and I'm not entirely sure on what the dates are, but there would be a split in the Society of St. Pius X, and you would get a spin-off society called the Society of St. Pius V, which sounds like a joke. It, like, it sounds like they just divided it in half, but it's actually St. Pius V was uh, the promulgator of the Latin Mass around <laughs> Trent. So I'm, I'm getting some of the facts and details wrong. But they, there was an actual, you know, St. Pius V was who they meant to, to name it after, but it sounds like a joke. Like, yeah. We're just getting smaller and smaller. Okay. So you have this starting to play out throughout the the six, uh, the 70s and into the early 80s. Uh, you get this term that emerges at this time, the spirit of Vatican II. And the spirit of Vatican II uh, is really a term that's emerging more on the liberal side of the church. And the spirit of Vatican II says, well, you know, the documents say X, but we need to interpret them within the spirit of which they are meant. Now, if that sounds wildly ambiguous to you, you would be correct. If that sounds like we can, and of course, I'm betraying some of my traditionalist bias here, uh, but okay, I'll put my cards on the table. Uh, I'm very, I'm not in the St. Pius X category, but I am a traditionalist uh, and uh, very much in the, on the side that would say that uh, several of the reforms following Vatican II uh, were ill-formed, uh, but Vatican II itself was a valid council. Are you going to tell us at the end of the episode which ones you don't like? or do Yeah, you I, I, right I can talk. No, let's get to through the episode okay. and we'll get there. So the spirit of Vatican II uh, starts to be promulgated by the more liberal tendencies in the church, and it impacts doctrine, and it impacts uh, the liturgy, and it, it kind of goes up and down, and you get the emergence of some truly horrific music, you get the emergence of some some god-awful masses in the form of, you know, polka mass and, and clown mass and all of this stuff. That, yeah, seriously. What does that mean, clown mass? A, a mass where the priest is dressed up like a clown. You're I'm kidding. not making this up. You Why, can find though? these be, because that's how we're going to attract people. That's how we're, you know, it's very much, you know, the whole tendency in evangelicalism, which can be a good thing or misapplied to be seeker sensitive. A lot of that's what's going on here. Well, we need to make the church and the mass more attractive to young people. So we're going to clown gonna, mass, yeah, clown mass, and all oh. of that. You know, we're going to have guitar mass. We're going to have all of this, and obviously, these are some extreme examples. Um, but you start to see the spirit of Vatican II basically means whatever I want it to mean. The spirit of Vatican II also starts to throw open long-held doctrines. Uh, 
especially about, you know, who can and cannot be a priest. Uh, today, you know, the nature of divorce, the nature of, um, you know, sexuality, all of these debates that are still ongoing today. So you have this faction that's starting to emerge. Into all of this, then, come two popes, one with a very short pontificate and one with a very long one. The first one is St. John, or not St., but John Paul I. John Paul I. Okay. He's pope for about a month before he suddenly dies. And actually, I think in Godfather 3, that's a, a I think they, because they, there's various conspiracy theories surrounding his death and everything, and I think Godfather 3 touches on some of that. I'd have to go back and rewatch. Does the family... Sure. I, I don't recall the, okay. the details. And then we get Carl Voltia, the first non-Italian pope, he's Polish, in centuries. And he becomes St. John Paul II. I know that one. And he his pontificate lasts for 27 years. Now, the beauty of John Paul II's pontificate is that although he is very much on the conservative side of the Reform Party, so he he's there with Ratzinger, who's who's a cardinal at this point. He is, he has a a soothing presence on the church, where he manages to create something of a truce between these different sides. Now I'm vastly overstating it, but he's able to get the church through this initial tumultuous period, and where things kind of wind up throughout his pontificate is that, okay, we're going to do Novus Ordo, which is the new mass, you know, facing the people. Communion is going to be allowed in the hand. You're going to have all these things that might make the more traditionalist side of the house upset, but yet we're also holding very strong to doctrine, and we're not going crazy with clown masses, though those still were happening at Well, five. yes, I want to say, I don't know if you noticed, but for the last few minutes I've been researching clown masses. <laughs> Any and, good, good well, finds? Well, I mean, it's just interesting. Uh it starts being practiced right away in the 60s. So uh -huh. as soon as Vatican II is over, you get clown masses. Yeah, there were people raring to go. And there were – it, it uh, varied in popularity over the next two decades. But there was a surge in popularity in the early 1980s. So listeners, if you're out there and you remember the early 1980s, if you've ever been to a clown mass, please do write us at feedback. Yeah, at yeah. If you, if, if you want to make a traditionalist of any stripes, uh, just, just – Furious, start saying you think cloud masses are a good idea. Come, they need to come back. <laughs> they need to come back. They need to be absolutely destroyed. Uh. So John Paul II is navigating these waters. He's allowing the liturgical reform. He's allowing the greater dialogue outside of the church. But he's also holding stand on doctrinal matters. A big part of that is the role of uh, Joseph Ratzinger within his pontificate. Uh, Ratzinger's, Ratzinger's nickname is God's Rottweiler. So he, remember, he's on the reform side in this. He's not one of the arch-traditionalists. And we'll get back to the Society of St. Pius X in just a second. But he's very much on the side that, yes, there needed to be reform. Vatican II, a good thing. But we are not compromising doctrine. The church teaches what it teaches. These things are not up for debate just because we are revising and reforming the liturgy. And so uh, they have a little bit of a good cop, bad cop relationship. You know, Pope John the Paul II is this beloved pontificate. And when he needs somebody to be as big heavy, he has Ratzinger there. Okay. Okay. Now, there's one place where this doesn't work out so well. And that's with the traditionalist groups in the late 80s. In 1987, uh, Cardinal Lefebvre, and again, I don't think I'm pronouncing him right, is, realizes he's getting very old 
and he needs to have some new bishops who are going to keep the SSPX going, uh, SSPX Society of St. Pius X. Okay. He decides to consecrate some of his own, even though he is told by the Vatican not to do this. The result is that the SSPX is excommunicated. Lefebvre is excommunicated. They're all, they're all done. So now they are, have a hard break with the Catholic Church. And I, I can't even imagine that we have too fond of a view of the Society of St. Pius V. I don't know if they're still running around, but they're definitely not in communion with Rome if they are. There is one faction that emerges uh, from the SSPX at this time, the Fraternal Society of St. Peter, uh, the FSSP, which is in full communion with Rome and practices the Latin Mass, and they are um, they are the side that didn't go where the SSPX went in terms of being excommunicated from Rome. And there's an FSSP church here in Minneapolis. I haven't been to it, but they practice the traditional Latin Mass, and they do so with the full blessing uh, of Rome. Have you in your lifetime been to a Latin Mass? I have not. Okay. Uh, my parish will at times do the the, la- the Mass in Latin, but I haven't been to a full-on Latin Mass. Is it, do you have interest? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I didn't have kids, I would drive down to the Minneapolis church every every Sunday. What's that one called? Well, isn't there like a big... Uh, there's a few churches. Okay, there's a giant there's Catholic church. There's a basilica, church. but that's not what I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we have all of that come out. John Paul II also creates this idea of the new evangelization, which is a, a very traditionalist friendly version of the idea that we need to open the door of dialogue with the church and the world. In other words, when the, the church enters into dialogue, it doesn't mean that we're now going ultra relativistic, though that is where the more liberal wing of the church goes. What it means is that the church has a role in the world. We need to talk, open dialogue with Protestant, uh, different Protestant denominations, with evangelicals, with non-Christian faiths, and we, with, with, uh, Jewish leaders, with all of this. And the church needs to, has a vital role in engaging in dialogue with that. The concept of the new evangelization is to be able to say, let's open up Catholicism and show it to the world as something attractive and beautiful and bring people into the church, make it easier to convert to Catholicism. The whole RCIA, right of Christian initiation of adults that I went through was a result of, of things that St. Pa- John Paul II put in motion. Uh, and there's been tremendous uh, results from this. In the late 90s, Lutherans and Catholics put out a joint statement or joint declaration on the doctrine of justification. Now, think about that. Like, justification, if you know your Reformation history, that was like the big issue. And the church and Lutherans were able to arrive at a point, not to say there aren't any differences or any points of disagreement, we're able to say, okay, we Catholics look at it from this perspective, Lutherans look at it from this perspective, but we're really saying the same thing, and this, 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 and this. Mm-hmm. Tremendous document. It's just a tremendous document. And that is the good result and good fruit of Vatican II, and especially of John Paul II. You mentioned the class you take, that RC... RCIA. So RCIA, I've been familiar with this just from besides you, other friends that have converted to Catholicism. So this is the class you take when you want to learn what it means to become Catholic, or it's the class you take to become Catholic? Both. Both. Okay. I mean, essentially, in RCIA, there's various uh, rights that are associated with it. Mm -hmm. So there's like a right of acceptance. And so there's points, but there, you know, you can go to it without converting to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but the I most people in it are converting to Catholicism. And then, uh, roughly, how long does it take? Uh, about a year. Okay. Yeah, a little less. Okay. Kind of a school. And year you're saying that that didn't exist before John Paul II. Not not in the same way. No. So what did somebody do before that? Well, you'd, let's you'd say probably, you like you'd, you'd probably go up to your local parish, knock on the door, talk to the priest. Say so you want to do what? You know, what I mean, it was just basically like it was kind of a an unusual thing for people to convert to Catholicism. Really? Yeah. So let's just say you had the exact same story. You were Protestant. You uh, you decided to become Catholic. RCIA doesn't exist. You just show up, and the priest can. Dis- I, I don't exactly understand. Well, there would be a period of education with okay. the priest, and I I don't know enough about what that yeah. would have been like to say more, but it would have been. Less of like parishes today openly advertise RCIA. Yeah, you wouldn't have that. You would have had to inquire and ask, and then the priest yeah. would have set up times to meet with you and talk with you mm-hmm. and do all of this stuff. And it was more less of a formal process. If you're listening and you want to convert to Protestantism, all you have to do is just show up. You're in. Yeah, easy in, easy out. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, what if you want to get out of Catholicism? What do you have to do? Is there something of a do to? Get out of it? Well... Because you said easy in, easy out. I, I know you're just joking, but right. is there a process for no, leaving uh, yeah, I mean, the, uh, the Catholic Church? Outside of being excommunicated, the Church considers you a baptized Catholic. Now, there are certain obligations that a, a Catholic has, especially if they want to be receiving communion. So let's say that you just... you. you haven't been you were raised catholic you haven't gone for a number of years should you just show up and start taking communion no i would you know in that case i would encourage you to go and meet with your priest go to confession and all of that um so you know there are obligations involved but it's not as though you just suddenly stop becoming catholic last question i think you know i'm reading a question and answer book on catholicism and yeah. learning some different things i i you know we i've heard the term excommunicated for a long time i just thought it meant you're kicked out of the church but I want to state to you what I think it means now after reading this book, and you you correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. Does it simply mean you're not allowed to take the Eucharist? No, not exactly. It's more extreme than that. Well, what does it – just – I know you have other notes to get to, but just tell me what does it mean to be excommunicated? You're, you're now no longer in communion with the Catholic Church. Okay. So when I, you know, was received into the church, I was uh, now in communion – with the Catholic Church. Now, I have stayed in communion with the Catholic Church. If I commit a mortal sin in that state, I, I need to receive confession before I'm prepared to receive Eucharist, but I'm still in communion with the Church. Excommunication severs that, and you have to be formally received back into the Church. RCIA again. I don't think it's RCIA at that point. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and in the case of like the bishops, if a bishop is defrocked or excommunicated, uh, when a bishop is consecrated or ordained, you know, they, there's a series of rites that they go through and, you know, rubbing on of oil on your palms and everything. And all of those happen in reverse when a priest is defrocked oh. up to it. And I don't know that this actually really happens, you know, in the modern context, but up to and including that you're supposed to scrape the skin of their palm where the oil was with a knife, not like in the, not where you're actually cutting them, but symbolic of you are re- removing that chrism that is applied to them. Wow. It's, a, it's a wild process. Okay. But let's not get into excommunication yeah. more than that. Okay. So early 20th, 21st century, uh, John Paul II passes away, very old. And 2005. Cardinal Ratzinger is erect, elected as uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. I happened to look it up because I couldn't remember how long Pope Benedict the Sixteenth 
was not i know that's not the right term but in office what would you yeah, say it, it, yeah. it, what, what is the right term for that uh, i don't know so it's, but it's I, I knew pontific. i knew it was short i thought it was a few years it was actually eight years it was eight years like oh so so 2005 pope john paul ii dies 2005 pope benedict the 16th takes over correct now this uh seems like a major victory for the more traditionalist forces within the church and in, in, indeed it is it's really the affirmation of uh what John Paul II had put in motion and moving it further in that direction. If the spirit of the Vatican II is sort of the rallying cry on the liberal faction of the church, the rallying cry on the more traditional faction of the church is uh, outside of the SSPX people who just want to forget Vatican II ever existed, is that we need a reform of the reform, meaning that the problem was not the council. The problem was the application of the council. That's what needs to be reformed. And that is really in motion with uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. You start to have greater openness to things like practicing the Latin Mass, uh, including, say, in the Novus Ordo in Latin. And Novus Ordo, I don't want to get too deep into inside baseball Catholicism, but that's the new Mass. It's the new liturgy. It can It's traditionally performed in the vernacular, but it can be performed in Latin. Uh, the extraordinary form is the pre-Vatican II uh, Mass, the Tridentine Mass, the Mass that's been around since the Council of Trent. That's what like, the FSSP and SSPX are per- performing, and some churches do that as well. But oftentimes, it is the Novus Ordo in Latin, and Benedict paves the way for that to happen. There also starts to be increasing dialogue with uh, St. Pius the X, those folks. Um, it doesn't go great at this point, but things are, are moving in that direction. Part of what's happening, though, behind the scenes is that you're starting to have massive bureaucracy and massive corruption within the structure of the church. Obviously, we have the whole uh, abuse cycle, and that's a big part of it. But when John Paul II was... You know, in his final years, his 27-year pontificate, and for the last several of those, I mean, he, he just wasn't functional in a meaningful way. And so to use a term that I know is controversial, but I'll, I'll use it here and hopefully people can appreciate how I mean it, uh, the deep state, you know, within the Vatican, the deep state, as the way I would define it, would be a group of unelected officials, bureaucrats, pulling the strings, there's no question that exists to some degree, both in politics and in religion. The question is to what extent and how much. Well, the deep state, whatever that was, the Vatican deep state was very active in the final years of John Paul II. And indeed, uh, part of the reason why uh, Pope Benedict resigned was, A, he wasn't finding himself successful in combating that, and B, didn't want to go down that same road where you essentially have a pope in name only because he's unable to fulfill that function. So you're saying, so I know I, as I was looking up uh, the different, uh, the popes that we're discussing tonight, Pope Benedict XVI becomes pope in 2005 at the age of 78, the oldest pope ever put into that position. Yeah. Uh, So you're saying he was having a hard time fighting against these bureaucrats you could say Absolutely. that that uh, had power but weren't elected officials yeah and, and even you know different factions and forces in the church i mean the even among bishops and and keep in mind to the extent that john paul ii applied this truce and i use the term very lightly to the church as a whole all these factions are still there and in the final years of his pontificate they start coming out of the woodwork and they're continuing to come out of the woodwork and, and indeed are are the the tensions are are rising so he said pope benedict the 16th said i can't stop these forces that exist 
I I don't want to be a yeah, puppet. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it is conjecture and unconfirmed reports, but that seems to be the most well-founded interpretation of why he resigned is that he did not feel he was he had the capacity to a- accurately combat this sort of Catholic deep state and did not want to have you know, a 95-year-old pope mm-hmm. who, you know, and I'm not trying to make fun of everybody, but when you're 95, like, you're not functional in the way you should be. And so he's in his mid-80s at the time he resigns. He's looking at this, and he's saying, I'm not going to be able to function in the way the church needs for soothing all of this out. I need to resign. Yeah, I checked it out. It looks I don't have this exact age. It looks like he was about 86 when he stepped down, so... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean yeah. it was a pretty brave move. Oh, it was. It was. And then you come to the election of Francis. And if there was ever a pope who embodied Vatican II in all of its ambiguity, it is Pope Francis. What I mean by that is everybody's been watching over the last eight years. You know, Pope Francis says something. It's super ambiguous. You look at it one way. There's no problem with it. You look at it another way, and it's a it's a throwing a bone to the the liberal faction of the church. And this has happened again and again and again and again. It's why so many of us are frustrated with Pope Francis because part of what you look for in the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, is to not do that type of thing to provide clarity. And just like the documents of Vatican II opened up this huge reservoir of ambiguity. Francis's pontificate has done that same thing, and the factions that emerged in Vatican II are exploding once again. Hmm. Where we are today, part of you know, so part of what you will watch, where you see people reacting to Francis in different ways, is you're watching this fifty-year-old story continue to play out in the modern era, especially uh, to go back to our clown mess friends. And since I'm more traditionalist, I'll, I'll, I'll be mildly disparaging. But, you know, these sort of hippie liberal Catholics from the 60s, they get their reform. They're all excited. We're rolling out cl- clown masses just when it seems the going is getting good. In comes John Paul II with Ratzinger in tow, and it's shutting down all of our fun. And so you have, and I'm not making this up, but you have a a sizable faction of Catholics on the liberal wing of the church who've been waiting for 35 years for John Paul II and Benedict XVI to die so that they could get back to doing what they were doing in the the 70s. I think I hear you saying, and I'm not joking, I'm asking you real. Pope Francis would be somebody who would be in favor of something like clown masses. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. In fact, I don't think he would. <laughs> However, Pope Francis is ambiguous. And here's the better way to say it. Pope Francis introduces enough ambiguity where if you are someone who likes clown masses, you you will feel like you have license to do so. If you were doing a clown mass, there was no question Benedict was not a fan. There was no question John Paul II was not a fan. You could you could reasonably arrive at the conclusion that Francis would be okay with it. I don't believe that, but you can get there. That's the issue. So is Pope Francis ultimately the reason you thought this conversation was worth having? No, it's that I think this is like to understand Catholicism in the 20th century. This yeah. is a fascinating piece it of is. history. So I want to ask then, he's 84 years old. He seems very spry. I don't see him being somebody who is going to be leaving... Right. the papal office anytime soon. But when he does leave, 
where does the story continue? I don't know. I mean, and a lot of it, you know, that's within the deep state of Catholicism right now. That's the battle that's being fought between the conservative and liberal factions. What's your guess? Short term, the church will continue down a more liberal trajectory. Long term, it will not. And the reason I say that is that the the two greatest uh, wellsprings of traditionalist thought in the church are Africa and the young young seminaries, young seminarians across the world. Okay. I'll, I'll explain why those two are significant. Uh, just like with Protestantism, the church in the West is rapidly shrinking, and especially in Europe. And in Germany, is you know, there's literally a cardinal named Cardinal Marx who is an extraordinarily liberal cardinal. It's like evidence for a simulation that the the big liberal bad guy of of Catholicism is Cardinal Marx. Uh, and so, you know, the church is rapidly shrinking in Europe. In the U.S., there are parts of it that are and parts of it aren't. Very similar story to Protestantism. The church is exploding in a place like Africa. And the influence that Africa has on the global Catholic Church is only going to continue to grow, and they are very traditionalist in their theology. Uh, and then the young seminarians, you know, seminaries for a very long time were a hotbed of liberal Catholic thinking. They're not anymore. They might be in the teaching, in the structure, but the students are not, much to the dismay of many people in the church. So, you know, the, the, the dynamic that exists in culture, a lot of times, especially in politics, old people vote Republican, young people vote Democrat, that whole kind of cliche. It's kind of the opposite right now in Catholicism. Older Catholics are by, and this is by no means across the board, but by and large are more likely to be part of this boomer Catholicism that wanted clown masses, <laughs> right? It's so, but it's true. Younger Catholics are very traditional without rejecting Vatican II. And of course, you can find rad trad factions that are, are, are doing that. So I've never heard that phrase. Rad trad. Yeah, that's a, that's a, what's a, that mean? Radical traditionalist. Okay. We call them rad trad. Are you a rad trad? I'm not. Okay. No, because I would affirm Vatican II. Okay. You know, a rad trad would, would either take pot shots of Vatican II or uh, outright deny it, or at the very least, look down your nose at people who are, are going to the Novus Ordo or anything like that. Ben, when are we going to get to Vatican III? Uh, hopefully not anytime soon. Well, we need to have the church calm down a little bit. But wouldn't it be good to clear things up? What if Vatican III says, hey, Vatican II had some good things, but let's just clean things up a little bit? I mean, right now it would be a bloodbath. With okay. the church where it is right now, okay. maybe a hundred years from now, and Catholicism operates on that type of scale. Wow! So, two things. I'll, I'll, I'll answer the question of my own opinion, but I did find when I was researching this, I found a chart that I think is very useful, if not a little bit reductionistic. So, understand that, like everything, this is a generalist comment, but I think this is helpful. So, the chart is, you know, divides into four quadrants, and your quadrant is is based on how you answer two questions. So the two questions is, is Vatican II a hermeneutic rupture with tradition? In other words, to restate that, does Vatican II fundamentally change the way the church interprets theology as opposed to everything prior to Vatican II? So there's, it's not just a growth, it's not just an addition, it actually uh, would call into question the theological interpretation of, of the past. And we're going to treat these questions as binaries, but of course we could answer with some shade of gray. 
Question number two. Are the reforms following Vatican II a negative development that has weakened the church? Okay. So this this chart would say if you answer that yes, it is a hermeneutic and interpretive rupture, and no, it is not a uh, negative thing, you're in the modernist camp. That's the cardinal Marxists of the world. They have Pope Francis in there on this chart. But again, depends on how you're looking at him. I mean, I can see how you can get to that conclusion. I could also see how how you could not. Uh, Is Vatican a hermeneutic rupture with tradition? You answer yes, but you say it's negative. You are in the traditionalist camp, the SSPX, those guys. They're saying, yes, it was a break with tradition and therefore maybe isn't even a valid council. And it was definitely a negative thing. Okay, then if you say, no, it was not a uh, rupture with tradition, and the reforms were not a negative thing, you're in what they call the neoconservative camp. But this is where they put St. John Paul II. And I'd say I could debate that a little bit. I think that it depends on the reform we're talking about. But this is a lot of Catholics in there who say, no, no, we, we it's not a rupture with the past, um, but we have no desire to have the the mass in latin we don't want to you know we want to receive on uh in the hand you know we don't have any problem with all of that we're very open to uh maybe not clown masses but we're open to more reformed less traditional styles of mass okay and then the conservative camp and this is where i would put myself would be is vatican to a rupture with tradition no were the reforms a negative thing yes and again i don't want to that's Applying as a binary is too broad because I'd have I'd come back and say what reform, but by and large, if I had to take all of them or none of them, I would take none of them. So who is the face of this? Benedict, uh, Benedict the Sixteenth yeah. is really who. I know you love him absolutely. And again, is he your favorite pope? Uh, I mean, you've got, are you allowed to have a favorite you know, pope? You know, you'd, I think you'd have to go with Peter as your favorite pope. He's a pretty good one. He was a good one. So the way that looks for me, and this will I'll, I'll close on this to answer some of those things. Uh, I do not receive. Eucharist on in the hand, and I think it should be discouraged. I, because you shouldn't touch it at all. Correct. They should absolutely. The people I who think are it uh, is it anointed, or what's the word you would use? Consecrated. They're consecrated. Yeah. They should be the only ones to touch it. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, it it ups the reverence mm-hmm. of what the Eucharist is. I'm in favor of. Um, I I don't mind the Novus Ordo. I am in favor the new Mass. Okay, I, I as don't... opposed to the extraordinary form, which would be the Tridentine Mass. Okay, I know you mentioned those. I don't remember what they mean. Uh, yeah, I just uh, it's part of the reform. I do like my church once a month celebrates the Mass uh, ad Orientum, and I prefer that. I prefer that because we're facing Christ. Ad Orientum is facing away from the people. So the priest talks, but away from you. For depends on the part of the Mass. But yes, like when he's doing the consecration, he's facing Christ. And the image to explain the power of Ad Orientum to people, because at first, you're, why is he facing away? That's just weird. He's not facing away. He's He is at the, the, the front leading his flock facing God. That's the vision. Because of is Ad he Orientum. facing like a crucifix or something? He's facing the crucifix. But more important, he's facing the tabernacle where the consecrated Eucharist is kept. It's similar to when uh, we do the national anthem at a sporting event and yeah. everyone turns toward the flag. Do you uh, yeah, it's that? a very similar idea there. And so, you know, I'm a big fan of that. I'm not a fan of modernist music. I, I don't, you know, I like the traditional hymns. I, I think they foster reverence. I think the mass needs to foster a sense of the transcendent. So, 
you know, am I a hardline traditionalist? No. Uh, but am I in that conservative quadrant as it was laid out there? Absolutely. When you say modern music, I don't know what Catholics, you know, have for modern music. Uh, do you guys play, like, I'm not being funny here, but, you know, a popular Christian artist would be like Hillsong or Chris Tomlin. Yeah. Is that what you're experiencing? No, no. It's, What's it's modern for Catholics? More, you know, it's more arrangements for the mass that are written in a more modern style at this point modern means like 1980 so Mm -hmm. it definitely has not aged well but with some questionable uh theology in them um you know there there's some pretty bad music out there and and it it would be too hard to describe if you haven't heard it and heard the songs but suffice to say that you can put that against a more traditionalist liturgy Oh, Vatican two, Vatican two. Well, I can't wait to continue on with the history of Christianity. We'll be back for Vatican three. In, in when <laughs> you said a hundred years, hundred years. Here's a, yeah, as we close, I'm going to hit the music, but as we close, I do want to read this quick quote about clown masses because I think we've been giving it a bad time. You might want to, I, I, I don't think we have, we have not been giving it nearly as bad a time as it reserves. Listen to this quote here. Um, so bringing clowns to Christianity put a new face on the Christian message. It made it playful and took St. Paul's words seriously. And here, here's a quote from 1 Corinthians 4.10. We are all fools for Christ. So here's to you, clown masses. Thanks for being there for the people. Well, they, they definitely were fools. I don't know if it was for Christ, but they were definitely fools. Uh, here's my counter. Do you want fun or transcendent? Yeah. And that's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Ben DeBoto. And we're the Sci-Fi Christians signing off. See you at episode 1000. You know, how fortuitous would it be if we're in our 90s doing this? We hit episode 9,999 right as Vatican III is going on. Oh, that would be so perfect. I hope that happens. (laughs) God wants it that way.